can just mute it. So the thing about this that's really exciting is, I think for a lot of us that grew up in, in the church or around the church, we've probably done communion or the Lord's Supper repeatedly. You know, probably for me, it was, a bit, it was a bit mystical because the church that I grew up in, I grew up in a BOBC, and that's okay, a big old Baptist church, nothing wrong with that, but we had a specific table just for communion. And on the front, it probably read the same thing that a lot of you guys are, are familiar with if you grew up in the church, and it says, do this in remembrance of me, or this done in remembrance of me, that kind of thing. And so there'd be the silver trays, they'd be passed around, you'd take out the fancy cups, and you'd take out the wafer, you would do that. And, and probably, like me, you probably thought, this is something we do. Okay, and that's fine, because it is. Like, it is something that we do. Um, and you probably even heard, like, when we talk about communion, we, we kind of lay it out in a very specific way. Um, but we talk about when we do this, we, A, we remember Jesus. We remember who he was, what he said, what he did, what he accomplished on the cross, how he left, how, he, how he's going to come back. So we look back, we look forward, and we say when we do this, we remember Jesus. And we also say that when we do this, we remember Jesus, but we remember Jesus together. Looking back together, looking forward together, and that's good. Um, but for a lot of us, probably, because we've either done it so repeatedly, um, or maybe we didn't grow up in the church at all, we just kind of take for granted that it's just something that we do, but we've never really stopped to ask about the why behind the what. And like for us as Christ followers, this is vital. We need to be just like deeply and keenly aware of all of the whys behind our what's. And what I mean by that is we need to know why we do what we do. And I'm not talking about tradition. I'm not talking about fundamentalism. I'm talking about as we follow Jesus, we need to be aware as to why we do what we do when we're following Jesus. We need to know what the benchmarks are. We need to know what the standards are. But more importantly, we need to know why are the benchmarks important? Why are the standards important? Are they just rules and regulations? No, they're not. They're vastly deeper and more foundational than that. And so today it excites me that we get to tackle this idea of the why behind the what of communion. And we're going to do it just through the gospel, the way that Jesus began and started it. And at the end, we will get to worship and, and take communion. Our table is open. We'll, we'll talk about that. I hope we have enough cups and uh, bread back there. We'll, we'll be okay. If you and your spouse need to share and co-sip, you can do that. I trust the germs of your spouse for you, not for me. Um, but let me pray, and then we're going to jump into this text and walk through it. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us. We thank you um, that you are the why behind our what, just to give away the ending. We thank you that that is so necessary for us to grasp and understand and lay claim to that you are the why. Father, as we read your word written to us so that we may know you and make you known, uh, Father, I pray that you'd receive the glory, we would receive understanding, and your kingdom would grow. Thank you for loving us so much uh, that you made a way. Uh, I pray that we remember that way today, we celebrate that way today, and that we're living in it. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 14. It will be on the screen, but I would implore you that if you want to be a responsible studier of Scripture, do not rely on a screen. Bring your Bible with you on Sundays. And if you don't have one, they are on the table back there. You can grab one. Your phone is great, but just as personal preference, it's not as good as one that you can hold and write in. So that's just me. I'm not going to put my baggage on you, Ricky Bobby, but I just did. So deal with it. If you want to talk about it later, there's coffee in the back, and we can have a conversation. That's my attempt at being rude. I'm not very good at it. So anyway, all right, Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in uh, verse 12. 
Um, and we're going to lead up to the Passover, and we're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. I feel like the institution, calling it an institution, is one of the things that makes it difficult for us. But anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. So verse 12, and it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, this was a, a festival that they celebrated, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. We're going to pause right there. And so this sounds a whole lot like when he entered Jerusalem just a few days ago. For us, it was like months, but in reality, it was just a couple of days um, when they were about to enter Jerusalem for what we call the triumphant entry. Like he tells his disciples, I want you to go ahead of me. You're going to find a man. He's going to have a donkey, a donkey that's never been sat on, just like the donkey that was talked about in the Old Testament concerning me when I would come in. You're going to find him, and you're going to say, Master needs the donkey. And what he's going to do, he's not going to ask any questions. He's just going to give you the donkey. Same thing that we said then, we will say here, did Jesus arrange us beforehand? Was it a supernatural intervention? Had the Spirit spoken to that guy? We don't know, okay? This is what we do know. Jesus had made a way, okay? Either through face-to-face, voice-to-voice communication, saying, one day I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask a favor. He probably didn't do it quite like that, not Godfatherish. But, you know, he, there was some kind of arrangement there, whether it was by the Spirit or whether it was by Jesus himself. There was some kind of arrangement. So he told the disciples, he said, I'm going to get you to go ahead and, and you're going to see this guy carrying a jug of water. He's likely a servant in somebody's house. Just follow him and just walk into the house behind him. Nobody's going to stop you. And when you get there, just say whoever is, is ruling over the house, the master of the house, um, the teacher, the rabbi, the rabboni, that guy, um, he's wanting to know what room is prepared for him to have the Passover. And he'll direct you to the upper room. Go there. And so what they understood would happen then is they would go there, they would prepare the lamb because Passover was instituted way, way back. And this is one thing that we need to understand to in order to, in order to understand the table back there. Passover wasn't something new. Passover was something that had been celebrated for generation after generation after generation going all the way back to Exodus 12 when the people of Israel were captive in Egypt. And there were a series of plagues in which God was using to speak to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. There's even several songs written about it in a nice, deep, baritone voice. They should be sung. But either way, there were several, there were several like, generations that had been doing this. And what occurred then was that culminating at the end of all of these plagues or judgments against Egypt, Jesus said, or God said, I'm going to do one more thing, and this is what you need to do in response. So um, this is going to be your first Passover. And during that first Passover, if you want to read about it, go and read that section of Exodus chapter 12 and, and the surroundings. But basically, it was going to be like, I'm going to do one more thing, and it's going to make Pharaoh let you go. Let you go, of slave, let you go from slavery, let you go from bondage, let you go from oppression, and you're going to go to the promised land that I had for you. Do you see any of the parallels yet? We should. And so this plague, it was a rough one. It wasn't frogs, it wasn't water turning to blood. It wasn't the sky darkening. Those had already happened. It wasn't just locust. It was worse. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass over this group of people. I'm going to go through this group of people, and I will kill every firstborn child in each house unless, unless you take a spotless lamb, you sacrifice that spotless lamb, and then you take that blood and you smear it on each doorpost or going up the door and across the 
the top of the door. And when I see that, or the Spirit sees that, He will pass over that house, sparing the firstborn son, passing over. And leading up to this, they had celebrated their first festival or the time of unleaven. And basically that was very, um, very symbolic to say, take all of the leaven out of your house, the things that make bread rise. I want you to symbolically remove that. I want you to eat flat, stale bread, basically, not really, crunchy bread. But I want you to do that as a symbol to say, we're getting rid of all of these things that we don't need, just like we need to get rid of all the things that we don't need here. And then you're going to be obedient. You're going to be obedient in faith, and I will pass over your house. And in passing over your house, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to spare your firstborn son, but I'm not going to spare the firstborn son of those who don't believe and don't trust me. They will be sacrificed. And as a result of them being sacrificed, Pharaoh will be hurt, appalled, and he will let you go. You will find freedom because I passed you over, but I didn't pass over those who didn't believe. And it sounds horrible. And to be honest, it was. But it was also victorious at the same time. First Passover. And as a result of that Passover, the people of Israel were told, each year you will celebrate. And you will celebrate it by taking the best lamb that you have, spotless, unblemished, never used. You will sacrifice that lamb, and then you will roast that lamb. And he gave them very specific instructions as to how they should roast it, how they should eat it, what they should do with it, when they should do it, all of these things. Uh, but that's what they did. And that was this time of year that this was occurring. And so Jesus being Jewish, the disciples being Jewish, it was that time of year. And it was time to celebrate the Passover. And so he sent them ahead. Yes, we're going to celebrate Passover. It's very likely that for whatever reason, like chronologically, they did it maybe a day early. We don't know for sure. But it seems like... It's very possible that there was some kind of communication that occurred that they did it a day early. Now, the days for them were a little bit confusing. Like for us, we say tomorrow starts at midnight. Like at, when, as soon as it goes 11.59 and 59, as soon as it clicks over one second, that's tomorrow. But for them, tomorrow began at sundown. So as soon as the sun would go down, it would be tomorrow. And so there's a little bit of confusion when it comes to that. But it's likely that maybe Jesus and his disciples, they celebrated Passover a day early. Maybe they had things to do. We don't know. But either way, they went, they prepared the Passover meal, um, there was a place prepared for them, there was a house ready for them, all of the things they needed to celebrate Passover. Little did they know the symbolism and the things that were about to occur between Jesus and them, and over the next few days, between Jesus and the rest of the world for all eternity, would be earth-shattering, and eternity wakening, and just history rocking. They didn't know. They just thought, We've done Passover since we're kids. Now we have a, a rabbi who loves us and, you know, thought enough of us, even though we're very blue-collar, uneducated men, to teach us, to train us, to equip us, to release us. And he wants to have Passover with us, so we're going to have Passover with him, and we're really excited. That's, that's about what they knew. And so they went to prepare Passover. But what we also know as a result, of, a result of last week, we talked about the intercalation, the sandwiching of stories, the beginning of the passage that we looked at, and the end of the passage last week, there was also some drama that was occurring behind the scenes in the person and in the actions and in the thoughts and processes of Judas Iscariot. Because like we saw last week, uh, Judas uh, went to the powers that be after they were seeking a way to kill Jesus, after the festivals, he went to them, and in some way, some way for some reason, he was such, in such turmoil... He said, I will, I'll hand him over to you if you want him. And they're like, we'll pay you. And he was like, that's great. I'll gladly be paid. So there's some drama going on in the midst of 
preparing Passover, having Passover, remembering back that Jesus had done a couple of things, spared the firstborn, set them free. Those two things. So in verse 17, we'll pick back up. And it says, And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, and by the way, just as Bible scholars that we need to be, any time that he says something like that, he said it last week too, Truly I say to you, pay attention, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after the other, Is it I? And so this is an interesting thing. Like, I mean, it is. Like, just to think in the, in the scope, like if this was a Netflix series, like if we were watching a Netflix series, um, we'd be like, oh, man, it just got real. Not only is someone about to betray him, but he knows. And now he just brought it up to whomever it is. He knows that 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 he knows. Drama. Drama. Super interesting. Like, I know we can, we can warp our brains trying to think of the providence of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, and the way that he is sovereign over all, and the way that there is a, a big plan in place. Jesus knew that someone was going to betray him, and he didn't stop them. He knew that it was going to happen before it happened, and he didn't stop them. Because he knew that this betrayal would ultimately lead to the purposes, the plans, and the redemptive power of God on display in the life, the words, the death, and the resurrection of him. So he didn't stop them. Netflix series just got really interesting. So he told them. He said, one of you, truly I tell you, I'm not joking, one of you that's sitting here right now, one of my twelve, one of my Twelve of the twelve that I called out of obscurity into following me, the only rabbi to ever pay you attention, the only rabbi to ever release you in the power and the authority of my name, in the name of the Father, because we're one and the same. If you've seen me, you've seen him, one of you will betray me. And so imagine the thoughts of like, you know, your your Peter, your John, and your, you know, your really upright disciples. I mean, that says that they all ask, is, is, is it I? Is it me? But just imagine Judas sitting there in that moment. In Matthew and in John, we actually see that at some point within this conversation, Judas actually comes up and he's like, you talking about me? He's like, yes, I am. What you do, do it quickly. Crazy. Like Crazy. The sacrifice was already on Jesus' plate, and he wasn't getting rid of it. He knew it was coming, and he's just like, just do it. Just do it. So he says, it is, one of the twelve, continuing in verse 20, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So there's a couple things. Number one, he's being more than just prophetic. He's laying out what's about to happen, but he's also casting judgment, too, on the one who's about to betray him. Even though it matches the purposes, the plan, the will of God, this man still had to make a choice to accept, to hand him over, which we'll see in the coming weeks. He's already made those plans. He's already accepted payment or agreed to accept payment. And he's like, but for that guy... Of my 12 that is going to betray me, 
it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. I don't know how all this works when, in the grand scheme of plans and purposes of God, but I almost feel like that was like, hey, it's not too late, Judas. Now, granted, the plans and the purposes of God had to go forward, so it will, like it will wreck my brain, like it would if I really spent time thinking about it, but the words were there, like just letting you know, Judas, it's you. You know it. I know it. You've asked me, is it me? You've said so. What you do, do quickly. It's going to be real bad for you. Was it a warning for him? Was it a warning for the 11? I don't know. Either way, he said it. And, it. and it's super interesting, too, that even at this point, even though Jesus wasn't willing to stop him because he knew that there was a bigger plan in play, a bigger purpose at play, a bigger glory at play at the moment, because just like he said in Philippians chapter 2, I'm willingly letting go of certain rights of my divinity so that the Father may receive the ultimate glory and I may be obedient, even obedient to the point of death. Like, even though he didn't stop him, he also still shared a meal with him. Like, symbolically for me, like, I understand food's great. Like, I love food, and I love sharing meals with people. But for them, it was even more relational, more communal. It was very important to actually sit down and share a meal with someone. That was basically like saying, hey, we're eating together, so what that means is we are family. We're family. We're brothers, you and me. If you're eating lamb, I'm eating lamb. You're breaking bread, I'm breaking bread. You're drinking juice, I'm drinking juice. We've got dessert coming. I don't know what it is back then. It's probably got honey and some nuts and stuff like that. It's probably going to be great because we're both eating the same thing at the same place at the same time. We're family. He still let that happen. Jesus is so different. Like again, like we repeat it over and over and over. We have to lay claim to that too and fully understand it's so different because you and I would not have been the same. If the Netflix movie had been, or series had been about us, we would have been like, you get out. You are not eating my brisket. You go. My brisket's meant for people that are not going to kill me. Go home. You can have Big Mac or something like that. But either way, not my brisket. But Jesus is like, no, you, you stay, you eat. One of you. One of you is going to betray me. And I, I do, man, I would have liked to have been like a, a fly on the wall and been able to read people's minds if flies could do that on walls, which they can't, but it would have been really cool to just go through the minds of the other 11 that weren't going to betray him, but they were still asking, is, 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 it, is it me? Am I going to do that? Pretty crazy. And then after the meal, like also within this whole exchange, it's, it's great to read the four Gospels about this because what we have when we read the four Gospels, not only about this but other things, is like there's one event going on. Imagine one room, but then you have three or four different people at different places in the room all observing the same thing but from a slightly different place in the room. So they all see slightly different details, not contradictory or anything like that, but from different perspectives or points of view. So it's neat to read the, the synoptics when they read this to see the little different things that they have, but then you go and you read John, and you see the things that he included, and, and in John's gospel, uh, one thing that he includes, he also includes Jesus washing the disciples' feet in this moment, like that's when he does that, like after they had eaten, he stands up, takes on the role of a servant, removes his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and goes and systematically begins to wash each disciple's feet, even Judas's, even Judas's, to say, I'm going to serve you right here, right now, take on the form of a servant, and I'm going to take care of you, even Judas. Different perspectives of the same event. And so after they had had their meal, then we find ourselves in verse 22. And it says, As they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, 
And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of, my, of the covenant or the new covenant, the new agreement, the new deal, which is poured out for the many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so after their meal, even though they had just eaten Passover, like which was the deal, that was why they gathered together, he does something new. Take note, he does something new. So after they had eaten this Passover, they'd been eaten for generation upon generation that was looking back at what Jesus had done, spared their firstborn, granted them freedom, he does something new. He simply takes the bread, he says, this is like my body, or this is my body, breaks it, passes it out, says, be partakers of my broken body. And he takes the juice of the vine, it was probably wine, we're not going to hell for that, it's okay, we can talk about other things about that if you need to later, um, did that. And he said, this is my blood. Take it. Be partakers of it. Not just take it, but there's an understanding of be partakers of it. This is the new deal, the new covenant. Make really express note, after the Passover meal, which they had been celebrating for generations, he did something new, something different, new. The body and the blood, closely related to what they just did, but new. I think the thing that eludes us very often is if we just go to the table and we take the bread and we take the juice, uh, we don't understand that Jesus really did do something new. In the past, it was an unblemished lamb. And that unblemished lamb was used so that they may uh, have their physical freedom, be released from Egypt, even though they would be prone to wander because they were disobedient and sinful. They would still ultimately, at least their people, would land in the promised land. Um, and they would have a lot of problems on the way and throughout. But he said that, that old lamb, yes, symbolically, it granted you freedom from your oppressors and it spared your firstborn. But now this new thing, I want us to compare and contrast just a little bit the old Passover with the new Passover. Because what Jesus was doing by instituting this new is he was saying that old Passover lamb, it is now done. It's becoming obsolete. It is taken care of. And me, I'm going to start a new deal, a new agreement, a new covenant, which a covenant is an agreement that is not dependent upon the faithfulness of both parties, but just the one, that being God. And he says... I'm starting something new. And by starting something new and by giving the body and the blood, he was saying, I'm the new lamb. I'm the new lamb. The old lamb's not going to do it anymore. It requires something new. And the freedom that's going to be granted is much different than the freedom that was granted generations ago. The freedom that was granted generations ago, it removed you from the physically oppressive environment of a people who wanted to use you, destroy you, kill you at times, this freedom that I'm offering you has eternal ramifications. Not just to set you free from people, but what we know by reading the whole of Scripture, the whole of the Gospel, is he's trying to set us free from the oppressive nature of sin that holds us all captive, that none of us can escape without that lamb who was willing to eat with the one who was going to betray him, who was willing to walk to the cross where he knew he was going to die, was willing to be beaten but never put up a fight, that lamb who wasn't just without blemish, but was perfect. 
in every sense of the way. Perfect in the sense that he had never sinned. Holy in the sense that he was completely complete. He was God. He was man simultaneously, which I am incapable of being. He was that. Not only was he bringing in a new covenant, but he was an entirely new lamb, a better lamb, a better Passover. Because now the Passover wouldn't just be for the firstborn son in your home. It wouldn't just be so that you would escape uh, the, the oppressive nature of a people that would hold you slaves. But it would be for all of those who would believe. In this passage it says for the many. The many representing those who would believe. Believe in the lamb. The perfect lamb. The only lamb that can fix what is broken in me. And that's my inability to know God and be known by God because I am hampered and destroyed by sin. I'm bringing in a new thing, a new covenant, a new deal. I'm a new lamb. Like this passage is, is super interesting because I, I think that I could, I could make some stretches and, and create some really cool and wordy um, and, and, and word trickery application, but I think the application for most of us is going to rest here in our brain and it's going to get in our heart. And then it's going to get out in the way that we think, the way that we do, the way that we act, the way that we even take that table, which is very important. And I think the first thing that we need to know, understand, and hear is that Jesus is better. That's it. Like, he's better. He's better than any sacrifice that came before, any that would be offered after. He's the only sacrifice that can meet the requirements that I can't. He is better. And what he's doing in the presence of these disciples right now in this place, in this time, is he's saying, I am bringing in something that you can't imagine. I am ushering in a time, a place, a faith, and a new orthodoxy that you could not possibly fathom. But you need it. And without it, no sacrifice that came before will be enough. No action that came before will be enough. No injunction of any special words will be enough. It's just me, my body, my blood, this covenant. Jesus is better. And for the Jews, that would have been really hard. Like, understand, like very often we talk about like a, a personal, relational, uh, emotional hermeneutic that we need to try to be able to feel and think what they're thinking and feeling at that time. For the people of Israel, that would have been incredibly difficult because they've been living in a system for as long as they can possibly remember, a system that they had put all of their eggs in the basket of so that they might be holy enough to be acceptable to God. And they were in living in a time and in a place now, and it's perfect that Jesus came here because it was at the peak of just the, the craziness that the law had grown to that it was impossible for anyone to fulfill it. It was impossible for anyone to be good enough. It was impossible for anyone to live up to the standards that it had grown to, not the standards given by God, but the ways that they had been perverted and grown by men. There was no way anyone could do it. And it's at that time, in that place, at that point of history, that Jesus came and he said, I am enough. Me. Your systems, I'm going to fulfill them all. Your laws, I'm going to fulfill them all. My body, my blood, that's it. Entirely better. Entirely other than. Entirely sufficient for those who believe. And we see it repeated over and over in the rest of the New Testament. Like, just Jesus. Just Jesus, just Jesus, just Jesus, just Jesus. Don't add this, don't add that, don't take away anything, just Jesus. Over and over and over. It's a repeated theme that goes through all the epistles and all of the, the rest of the New Testament as it's written post-Gospels. Just Jesus. By grace alone, through faith alone. Period. Just, just Jesus. 
It's exactly what he's telling them in this moment. Like he's not telling them anything else. He's not telling them start another festival. He's not telling them uh, start another system. He's like, just my body, just my blood. Just my body, just my blood. Believe in this lamb. Because it's the only one you'll ever need. Again, for the Jewish people, it would have been very hard too because they had also been waiting for this. And it's almost like when you wait for something with such great anticipation, maybe we don't even have something that parallels this perfectly, a great metaphor, because there's really nothing that we've been waiting for generationally as a people, right, from birth. But they were. They were waiting for this deliverer, this Messiah uh, to come, this Christ that had been talked about in different language and different terms from different prophets in the Old Testament. They had been waiting. And so for them, even the culmination, even hearing it, it would have probably been very hard to believe because they had been waiting for so long for so long, and he looks so different. He's not at all what they thought he would be. It wasn't political. It wasn't just about Israel. It wasn't just, uh, just about their freedom from an oppressive government, which they knew all too well over and over and over and over and over due to their disobedience. But they've been waiting. And so now that it's here, and it's in the form of a Jewish carpenter sitting in an upper room saying, it's just me, It would have been really hard to imagine, hard to accept, hard to take. But nonetheless, they would have to. And even in this moment, I think it would have been probably difficult for them to even possibly imagine everything that was coming. Even though he had told him, like we read the past four chapters, we're like, he laid out exactly pretty much what was going to happen. He was being betrayed into the hands of sinful people. He was going to be killed. He's going to be crucified on the third day. He would rise. He had said all of that, but they still were like, what? Mm." I think you're speaking metaphorically. He wasn't. He was being quite literal. Quite literal. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Even that last statement, for them to hear that, they would have probably been like, okay. You talking about next week? Week after? Whatever you say. Thanks for the bread. Thanks for the juice. It would have been so out of place. And for us, too, it still sits a bit out of place for us. And this is not me being sacrilegious. Like, to eat some bread, to drink some juice. It's okay that that feels out of place. It should. Like, to be honest, like, let me be honest. It should feel a bit not normal. Even though it's something we need to do regularly as a family. I feel like once a month is bare minimum. But it should feel out of place. It should feel out of the ordinary because it is. And, and from this moment on, the early church, the, the bride of Christ that Jesus left in his place, by the way, that he was coming to reclaim later, uh, this became a practice for them to do this regularly. We see it pop up in various places. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, we see Paul addressing the church in Corinth about it uh, with a little bit of interesting instructions because the people of Corinth, uh, they, were, they, were, they were quite messed up. They were. They they were pretty sinful people. The church existed there, but even the church had been corrupted by sin. And at one point, we're going to throw this passage up there, he's addressing some issues that are going on within the church as the way that they take communion. Um, And he's like, man, here's a couple things that you guys are doing. Um, Some of you are getting here early, and you're eating all the food. You're gluttons. And you're not even waiting for the rest of the people. Some of you are getting here early, and instead of waiting for people, understanding what this event represents, you're drinking all the wine, and you're getting hammered. That's what they were doing. 
And it sounds funny, but they were, they were doing it in a terrible way because what Jesus did in the moment back in this upper room is he started this scheme of saying, look, I want you to do this, and I want you to remember a couple of things, that I am a different lamb, um, that I'm the only lamb that you need, and you need to do this regularly with each other, and when you do it, you need to remember that I'm all those things that I just said. And I'm the, I am the lamb, I'm the perfect lamb, I'm the only one that you need, and you need to do it together. And when you do it together, you celebrate me, who I am, what I've done, and ultimately, as we see, we're also going to celebrate the fact that he's coming back. And what he started in us through uh, the reformation of salvation, he's going to bring to the fullness and completion when he comes back and reclaims all that are his and makes a new heaven and a new earth, eradicates sin, and makes everything just right like him. But in 1 Corinthians, he, he warns them in chapter 11, um, and he, he tells them. He says, uh, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why so many of, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You're like, what? You mean to tell me that if, if I take communion in a wrong way, I could be weak, ill, or die? It happened in Corinth. The table's not a joke. And you say, are you really saying that? I'm saying that's what Scripture says. And, and I'm always going to say what Scripture says. And you're going to say, hey, is this culturally changed? Is there something we don't know about? Maybe. But this is what we can know. We can know what Scripture says. And that's the reason that we stress this when we talk about uh, taking communion. Like, have you, A, examined yourself? Is there sin that is living in your camp that you haven't dealt with? Is it just hanging out there? Because if it is, you, you need to deal with it. And the way that we deal with it, we confess, we repent. Hey, God, this is what I've been doing. I know it's not what you want. Um, I don't want to do it anymore. Thank you for already forgiving me through the work of Christ because I believed in his sufficiency and not mine. Thank you for that. But now I want to restore that right relationship with you by leaving this sin behind and choosing your path instead. Each man must examine his own self. There was also, there's also another little underlying thing here that's pretty interesting. That examine one's own self, discern and judge oneself in here, it's also talking about what they were doing with outsiders, what they were doing with those that uh, were poor and unable. They were going and they were eating all the food before they could even get there. And he's saying, yeah, examine yourself for sin that's going on, but make sure that you're loving other people the way that I've loved you too. Because if you're not, that's also sin. What? Oh, come on, Jesus, I had a bad day. Well, sometimes the results of a bad day bear confession. <laughs> so he goes on, he says, that's the reason many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. He's like, look, yes, there's judgment that's going to come, sick, ill, die, because you're doing things in an inappropriate manner. You're going and taking of something very, very special that Jesus ordained and Jesus started so that we could celebrate him, remember him, and remember how good his sacrifice was. We've done it in the wrong, done it in the wrong way. But if we just stopped for a minute and we truly realistically looked at our heart in relation to God, we would see the things that we need to confess and repent of, and then that judgment of illness, sickness, and weakness is not going to come on us. Because we've taken stock of our life, and we've confessed accordingly. We've dealt with it. Not a magical incantation, but forgiveness as, as laid out in Scripture. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Bam! Written to believers, not non-believers, First John. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. But then he's also throwing in a little caveat there. But if you're being held accountable, understand God's doing it for a reason. He's doing it so you won't be like the rest of the world. You're being like his. So celebrate it when you are disciplined. So if you make a mistake and you take communion in a wrong way and, you know, or you live life in a wrong way and you're suffering punishment, God's judgment for sin, understand he's doing it because he's loving you. He's wanting to make you more like the bride that he desires you to be. So this table that we take, this, this bread and the juice, it's not just something we do. It's not just something we do. It's something that Jesus started to say, A, this is totally different. This is totally different. This is a new deal. A new deal. One you couldn't orchestrate. One you probably can't even truly understand. That's okay. That's okay. Um, and it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. And I know, like, for us in the church, for, for the church that's following after Jesus, I, I feel like there's three things that are similar to this. Like, we have communion, which we've talked about that. We also have baptism. Like, baptism is one of those things. See, we might call these the ordinances, if you wanted to use a big word. Um, but baptism is not something that we do on a regular basis. I mean, we're doing it again on Easter, by the way. Like, if you've come to follow Jesus and you've yet to declare that through baptism, uh, we'd love to celebrate with that with you on Easter, Easter Sunday, right out there. It's going to be cold. The water's going to be frigid. But you know what? It's still going to be good. Um, but that's one of those things, too. Like, Jesus told us to do this because it was important and it was specific. And there was something, there was a means for us to do it, not just to add one more thing for us to do. And just like baptism, communion doesn't save us. Like, it, it doesn't. Like, communion doesn't refine me and make me look more like Jesus. But God does say, when we do it, look back to what Jesus has done, the perfection of the Lamb that Jesus was, and the fact that He is coming back to make all things right. So maybe it does refine us, but not the act, but what God does with it. Baptism, very similar way. Marriage is another thing kind of like that. I would consider that one of the ordinances of the church, too. The church, not just origins, like the church, capital C. Like, on, in some regards, like marriage is just, man, it's just some people saying some words. But it's also paralleling a lot of things, and it's also doing something that God told us to do in a way that we were told to do it. And so, very similar. Like, not something that happens every day. I mean, not for us as individuals. I mean, it happens every day, but not anyway. But the bread, the juice, it's important. It's not just a last Sunday of the month perfunctory thing. Like in that moment, we pause and we remember, like, Jesus is better. Jesus is to be remembered. Jesus is to be celebrated. So he's better to be remembered, to be celebrated. And then there's this other thing, too. And I've kind of said it, and we say it frequently. Um, Jesus didn't do it in a room of one. He did it in a room of twelve. Like, it's also vital for us to understand that it's something that we get to do while we're looking vertically at Jesus is better, Jesus is to be remembered, Jesus is to be celebrated. It's also something that causes us to look horizontal and remember that we're doing all of those things together as a family. A family that's been bound together by that one lamb, by faith in that one lamb, through the one Father, the one indwelling Spirit, as a family. And it's important. And it should, it should, here's kind of the application. 
the idea of us celebrating that Jesus is better, Jesus is to be remembered, Jesus is to be celebrated, and us doing it together, it should bleed over into so much more of our lives. How we do community outside of Sundays, how we do community outside of community groups, how we do community on Monday mornings, Friday nights, Saturday at lunch, whatever it may be, how we do community. Like, yes, we look up, Jesus is better, Jesus is to be remembered, Jesus is to be celebrated, but we look across and realize that we have been bound together by that one perfect lamb. And how are we living in response to that? How does our life look different because of Jesus and because one another? Like, how is it different? For the disciples, I don't think they had any idea how different life was about to be. I really don't. I really don't, but they figured it out. I mean, we see things like Pentecost in the early part of Acts. They were figuring it out. We see the church grow and thrive even despite of martyrdom in the early parts of Acts. They were figuring it out. Uh, We see a man who was a persecutor of the church stopped on a road, blinded by the actual Jesus himself, going and planting churches in places that were vehemently against the way. They were figuring it out. We see them appoint men and women to lead, to shepherd, to guide, in spite of their weaknesses and their shortcomings. They were figuring it out. Jesus set us on a path with his life, his death, and his resurrection. And in order to follow that path, here's what we need. Just Jesus. And you say, well, there's a lot of other things. Yeah, there there are a lot of other things, but it starts with just Jesus, his body, his blood, a better lamb that wouldn't just last for a few generations, but eternal, eternal, eternal ramifications. So today, as we, as we do, we, we take what he started in that upper room with his 12. We take that bread. We remember that the bread was his body that was broken on our behalf because without that body being broken, We'd never know God. It had to happen. And man, it pains me to say that, that it had to happen. And then his blood that was poured out. Because there is no remission of sins without the spilling of blood, according to Hebrews and Old Testament sacrifice, the way that God set it up. But it wasn't just any blood. It was the best blood. Because just any blood might symbolically take care of sins for a little while, but his blood would take care of sins for all the while, if we just believe. So his body, his blood, we remember, we celebrate, but we do it together. We do it together. And it is is an action, but it's more. It's much more. And then, in the words of Paul, we do need to examine ourselves. We do need to, to make sure that we're not taking it in an unworthy manner, that we have metaphorically clean hands. None of us are perfect. None of us are infallible. But God set up a way for us to deal with sin. And if sin is there, whatever it may be, according to his word and according to the conscience that he puts in us at the rebirth and regeneration by giving us the Holy Spirit, if sin is there, we deal with that sin. We confess, we repent. And if you are unable to deal with your sin today in an effective manner, in a true manner, if you're not really able to be repentant of that sin, then don't take the bread and the juice. Sit there. God would rather you be honest than take it in an unworthy manner. And we would echo that. I would rather you sit there in your honesty than go back there and take bread and juice just because everyone else is doing it. Even if your spouse is getting up and you can't, that's okay. That's okay. 
also in examining ourselves, we, we do need to ask the question, do I truly know who Jesus is as my Lord and Savior? Because this is, not, this is not something that saves us. This is not an action that makes us necessarily more holy by result. But it is something that we do as a result of we have understood that he is the lamb. The lamb that we need. The lamb that we can't create. The lamb that I can't make on my own. The lamb that I can't be. He is it. The only lamb. A better lamb. To be remembered. To be celebrated. Because he's better. Do we know that? And if you don't know that, man, I, I want to lay it out for you really quick. Really simply. No pressure, none of this, but this is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to fix what we could not, our broken nature because of sin. We're all born that way, every single one, no matter how well-intentioned our parents are. We're all born broken. We can't fix that. My brokenness that's a result of sin, even one by comparison to a holy, holy God, is enough to build a wall for me that I cannot climb, that I cannot go through, that I cannot tear down. But only Jesus, only that perfect lamb, only that appropriate sacrifice that had to be God, that had to be man, that had to lay it down willingly, only Jesus, only Jesus can meet those standards. And he did willingly. And all he asks us is this. He doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't ask us to do X, Y, and Z and then come. He just says, I want you to come and I want you to believe that I, I am perfect and that you are not. And I have satisfied all the requirements, every single one, just so that you can know God. And all he asks us to do is believe, place our trust in his life, his death, his resurrection so that we can know God. And in doing so, that all it sounds like is this. Jesus, I know that in reference to you, I've not been good enough. I've sinned. That's what Scripture calls it. And I don't want that sin anymore. I want you instead. And so in order for me to have you, I need to believe that, Jesus, you are enough, and I want you. Would you save me? It doesn't require you to ask him into a little space with inside your chest. If you say that, that's okay, but that's not what it requires. It just requires us believing that Jesus and only Jesus is enough. Just Jesus. And then we simply say, God, I'm sorry for the things I've done. Please forgive me of those things. I believe that Jesus is enough. I want to believe in him so that I can know you. And that's the simplicity of the gospel. And today, if you've never done that and you want to do that, no one has to talk to you. You don't have to meet me in the corner. If you want to, I'll be glad to. But you can do it right there. You can say it right there. And then as soon as you believe that and you truly, truly trust in Jesus, you're more than welcome to stand up and take the bread and take the juice as a follower of Christ for the very first time today. Right here. You're like, that sounds way too easy. Thank you, Jesus, that it does. And after, if you do that today, here's the only thing I would ask. You tell somebody. You tell somebody that's a follower of Jesus because now it becomes our responsibility for us to make sure that you know what your life should look like now. Not the do's and the do-nots, but who you follow and how to follow him and how can we help. That's our job. That's our privilege. That's our calling. Not just mine as a pastor, but us as that's the plural of us, by the way, us is, it's us is responsibility. So today, the worship team, they're going to come up, they're going to they're lead us in a song. And as you feel led, if you can, you go, you take the bread, you take the juice, you do it however you want. Remember, it's the body of Christ, the blood of Christ symbolically that was broken and spilled on our behalf. Um, and then we're going to have some announcements by a, a huge team of people at the end. Um, but I want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us. Um, and for Origins family, gosh, thank you for being family. Thank you for not trusting in a building to be your church or an organization to be your church, but a family to be your church. 
Uh, that's a big deal. Um, and let me pray. And then as you feel led, you can go. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you so much for Jesus. God, we thank